Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you, as always, to all of the supporters of the podcast. It is wonderful to get so much positive reinforcement and response, and also to know that so many of you pass along the information about the podcast to those you know it could be helpful to and supportive of. And what I want to be able to do too is to let you know that I appreciate all the people who have contacted me, who have said that they would like to tell their story or they know someone who has a story that would be so beneficial to the listeners. So please let me know if you would like to tell your story. And please let me know if you know of others who have wanted to be able to share what they know what they've studied, what they've experienced, what they've overcome with the listeners on the podcast. I want to be able to do also a thank you to all of the supporters and also a special shout out to the people who give $10 and more a month to help to keep this show on the air. There is a lot of room for people to be able to give more And it is still something that, by and large, I pay for out of pocket. So anything really, really, really helps. And it keeps it going and will ensure its future. Thank you to Alex, to Ann and Richard, to the Apostababe, Linda, to Brianna, Camus, Christina, David, Donna, Jessica, Katrina, Ken, to Lillian, to... Ludwig, and to Maureen, to Michael, to Mislav, to Cynthia and Peter, to Scott, Sylvia, and Zofia. Thank you, thank you. I couldn't do it without you. Today on the show, you get to hear the second part of my conversation with Carrie Peck and Chris Peck, Gregory Peck's son and grandson. It has been so nice getting to know Carrie and Chris and being able to hear from them. They have a very strong legacy of social change and caring about not only caring about things, but doing something about any injustice or seeing change through and not just looking at it from afar and wringing their hands and hoping somebody else takes care of it. I really like when people jump in and get their hands dirty. And I'm happy for them too, because that's when you have, I think, a fulfilled and full life. When you make a difference and your life isn't just about you. So. In keeping with the theme from last week, a multi-generational kind of legacy of doing good work, of making inroads, of giving people chances and possibilities they might not have had otherwise to not only change their lives, but to see things in new ways. I look forward to having you hear the second part of my conversation with Carrie and with Chris. Enjoy.
you know, when I went to the Women's March, there was a woman there who was uh, 90, who was walking alongside me for a little while. And she had a sign and it was the original sign that she had used in a march decades earlier. And she had put a piece of paper on, stapled a piece of paper on that said, uh, don't make me have to get out this sign again. Uh, <laughs> like I've done this already way too many times, you know, remember the message. But I, I did get into an argument with somebody else. I don't usually argue, but because usually I'll just say something thinking it seems, well, it seems like an obvious point, but no, it sometimes causes uh, tension. But I was watching a, a police officer get a hero's funeral and uh, he didn't have a great record. And we'll just say that, but still he got a hero's funeral. And I said, that should not be based on position, that should be based on merit. And I thought that was obvious, <laughs> it was not. It was, it was met with, how dare you, don't you know what they're up against every day? And the, the, so there's this sort of deification, I think, across the board, which is scary, which can become culty in its own way. And so you can't question it and you should always be able to question it. Uh, especially people who have firearms, you should be able to sort of question their motives, I think, uh, and hope that you can trust them, but you don't know just because, not a just because they're a cop situation, just because anyone is anything. Uh, still, I think it should be based on merit. That was not a popular opinion with who I was talking to, but I'm wondering, Chris, did you have something to say about what your dad was talking about? Are people willing to give up their fear? Uh, and I really like that question. And what do you think? Is that what it's about for you, Chris, as you see it? I think we need to like name that as well, though. Like, who are we talking about, right? Whose fear are the police protecting? And we're talking about like white capital as well. Uh, and so I think, and a lot of this fear again is is falsely created, right? We have these false narratives that come up. You know, crime is not has been declining time decade after decade, as my dad mentioned. There are these these false fears about what it means. I've gotten that so many times since I, you know, the schools that I've worked on from people asking me if I'm afraid. And it's and it really comes from this again, like our society is largely segregated and we have this complete sort of uh, ignorance and these false narratives around what that means to be in communities of color. And I think that we really need to, you know, have a, a reckoning around education and, and self-education, right? There are, is an incredible plethora of, of resources out there. Uh, White Fragility is a phenomenal book. Uh, talking about Between the World and Me is another one. There are uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. There is so much access to education around who we are as individuals. And we have to make sure we break from these, these sort of primal fears that separate us and don't allow for us to have this common humanity. And I think fear allows for this division that our society has created. And we need to make sure that we you know, change those systems so that, that 
can't continue to happen. Mm -hmm. The idea of commonality that Chris just talked about, our society is based on a duality and flatly it's winners and losers. And that has never been so bluntly expressed as it is in, in the current hierarchy. Well, yeah. if that's it, it's about winners and losers, then, then change is almost impossible. If, that's, if the cop is about whether he arrests you or not, that's the wrong question. But right now we're getting locked into this, we, they, the 1% and the rest of us, mm-hmm. all false paradigms. Okay, right. I know they work like crazy, but they obviously can't sustain themselves and look at the the reaction right now to Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right. so that idea that commonality is 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 very critical. And um, we're getting on to a spiritual point here, I think, to consider our society as a commonality. We are all brothers and sisters. I don't want to get you know, I don't want to start rolling on the Bible here, but that is a fundamental change, whether it's us versus them or whether we're all one. And, and right now we're operating on the duality principle. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think there's also a possibility of celebrating our diversity as well. And right. I think there is this, I think like, for example, in history, there has been a false history. I think of this, this melting pot analogy which is based on assimilation, which you come in and you assimilate to this white American normality. And that's not America. That's not who we are. We are much more this, this salad bowl, right? Where we have these incredible flavors and mixtures and amazing cultures. And this diversity is what makes America so great. And we need to make sure that we recognize that and we recognize and provide equal access to the means of success and a quality of life for everybody in our society. And I think that is, you know, these sort of things that we really want to, uh, you know, shift so that we can, we can have those ideals that we are supposed to stand for. I, I, I love what both of you are saying. And I think that there, there's this piece that I talk a lot about when I work with people who have been involved in cults about how much they were played. Um, how much that there was created infighting uh, so that there would be this passion to, you know, defend yourself or to defend the leader from somebody who was trying to attack them or this sort of mythical enemy, because you know the expression, there's nothing as unifying as a common enemy. So if you can get this sense that there is an enemy, then we can band together and so much of what I see happening now is that people are trying to act with integrity and, and really act on their own behalf. And others are really getting played without realizing it. And it pisses me off, for lack of a better term. But, you know, I think that it serves certain people or, or our government or whatever to have there be dissension, to have there be this culture of just seeing what's different about us, but not in a good way. And so, what can people do? I get this is a big question, just in terms of the same thing with, you know, um, having a drug dealer, someone who's enticing you into believing something and engaging in a behavior that you think is really what you want at the moment and is going to be the cool thing. But at the end of the day, it ends up hurting you. And so I don't know how we can help people be able to see 
how they're getting kind of corralled into behaving in a certain way for someone else's benefit. Chris, I love this woman. She keeps on asking small questions, you know, nothing like, how about them Dodgers? Incredibly, <laughs> they're powerful questions, Rachel. So I appreciate them tremendously. You know, there, there is absolutely, I think there's, there's no easy solution to that. I think what is required is a real reckoning um, of the history of our society. The, and, you know, and, and with that reckoning, it, it comes with the understanding of why we uphold certain beliefs and have certain hierarchies and systems in place in our society. And with that recognition, then I think when we, once we have, you know, a more equal access to, uh, you know, to economic growth, then I think that provides, you know, this chance for, for more cohesion and more ability to com- converse. I think self-education is hugely important. I think we, you know, I think it's really, it's hard though, because our societies again are really segregated. And so we don't necessarily, we, and our, also the social media misinformation and this, and, you know, spreading of sort of false narratives yeah. makes it really challenging where we're kind of trapped into these bubbles of this, the only, you know, we see the same sort of news cycle time and time again, that only, you know, further hardens our positions. We're coming at an age where we, we have, you know, even even the most fervent and 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 locked toward advocates and you know really fighting in this collective move for Black Lives Matter, which is incredible. Like we're finally like pushing for this greater humanity while simultaneously having this white supremacist uprising. On the other hand, that is supported by our our current president uh, and you know it's seen as good good people on both sides. Right where we have, you know, we have these like really, like, you know, these it's frightening that we have both these momentums on either end, one for equality, one for the exact opposite, really being just like continually um, fed by misinformation that we see in our limited bubbles. Right, right, uh, and so I. I think misinformation is a huge issue, and I think that the internet is a, a, a limitless treasure of misinformation. Uh, and and so I'm I'm wondering. Just I know that you know we're we're going in a lot of different directions here. And yes, I'm throwing out big question. Sorry, without warning, yeah. I've warned you. Um, Keep it going. Um, but. So how I'm I'm just wondering about getting the message out, the successful ways of getting the message out, because I know, Carrie, when you're doing education and Chris, when you're doing education, I think about also with your father and grandfather, kind of n- not fighting against something, but entering the story. Yeah. Being in, in the script, in the story and engaging in the dialogue that he wanted people to hear. And maybe that was his way. So what do, you, what do you both think about a way to, to get people to hear a message in a way that where their defenses don't go up or they really listen? People will always respond to people. That, that, is, that is true of, of hiring, of, of making friends, of finding a wife, of, of business deals. People deal with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about 
how we reached students about drugs and about tobacco, the first thing we did was link with them as people and get involved. And the good groups, they, they bound so tightly, they became, they became good friends. And it was really terrific. Nice. Um, I worry on a societal level that the energy isn't quite there to reach everyone mm-hmm. and to combat a concentration of wealth, which means a concentration of power in a small group that since it has the wealth and the power, it's not interested in sharing at all. Right. Not interested in, in doing anything. I think the current Congress and many before it have principally been involved with the status quo. Mm-hmm. And as the country drifted, the country drifted, but those who wanted it steered their way mm-hmm. to concentrate more and more wealth, mm-hmm. lower and lower taxes on the rich. Mm-hmm. I mean, now the people that have all the money pay the lowest taxes. And their obvious interest is they don't want to move anything different. Mm-hmm. They're very happy at, with the way things are. Right. And um, my, my worry is that the weight of that societal movement, the, the movement of, of those in power, certainly we've shaken the streets and everybody has to pay attention. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's been this inexorable and, and both parties have done it. I don't want to point a particular finger. I, I think we could point a lot of fingers. Mm-hmm. But that ability to get the message out, the energy that it would take from people and the and the wrongs that it would take to energize people, um, I think that's what, that's that human energy is the only thing that could do it. Mm-hmm. It's the only it stopped the war in Vietnam. I think it, I think it's going a long way now towards stopping police brutality. Right. But we have to remember continually there's this group that holds the money and the power. Yeah. Uh, I must sound like Bernie. And <laughs> they're willing to wait this out. Right. That's not a bad thing, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I think no, that's a, a very important aspect, though, right? That we're talking about this entrenched power structures that, you know, we saw a large campaign with the Occupy movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the powers were able to wait them out and then they went on. We had, you know, our first wave of, of these amazing Black Lives Matter movement protests uh, that went on for a year in 2015. And then mm. kind of while the videos never stopped, you know, the movement kind of died down a bit and then it really has exploded in a really powerful way, connecting to a lot of people. And I think I really agree with my dad that the the power of the people to really shake the streets enough to shake the the chambers in Congress is what we need to do. Of course, we, I think there are systematic things that need to sh- change, like maybe term limits for senators. And, you know, I think that so many people get entrenched to the system that they're willing to just keep their uh, kind of the status quo in line. But I think as well, kind of going back to your question about how can we influence the individual is and through storytelling, like narrative is so powerful and we can really do that by exposing a multi-diversity approach to media and to movies and to literature. And I think once you have that exposure, uh, you can develop a greater and a more global perspective, uh, which is you know really powerful. But then again, in order to create change, you know, you can create change within your heart, which I think is 
time back to Kill a Mockingbird was that style. Of, we changed our, our, our parts about racism, but we need to take a past, a, a leap beyond that and, and start changing systems. It's not about changing the individual mm-hmm. and being not racist. It's about being anti-racist. It's about purposely, mm-hmm. right, moving against, right, what is in check right now. I love the idea of society as a moving sidewalk. And that means the sexism and the racism. And if you just stand along with it, mm-hmm. you say, oh, I'm neutral. Mm-hmm. You go along with all, all of that bigotry all of those oppressions, mm-hmm. you have to actively move against it in order for things to change. Right. And so I think that's the, like, that's the indoctrination. We're indoctrinated into systems of power that allow a certain few to maintain that power while the majority go along with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was beautifully said. Right, and then st- and push against our fear about pushing forward. And, and what, who might get in our face because of it and who within our community, whatever community that is, who's going to abandon us for it. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of risk, uh, for some people more than others, you know, we're talking also about community and I know I want to be able to wrap this up because you guys have lives, uh, but the, there are. There's something really interesting that, I mean, you've all said so many interesting things. And, and um, I, the reason I keep looking down is because I really have taken about four pages of notes. Um, but uh, Carrie, when you were talking about, when you said the groups of people who you put together, the ones who, that were, worked out well, they formed community. And that is, that it's a very interesting thing that you said because they, they developed a closeness they then had each other and they could share in their own success and give each other strength. And it's, that's quite a beautiful thing. And so I think, yes, there are people who are moving along on their own, but I think being able to connect with other people so you're not the lone voice, especially if you're needing to leave a community in order to say what's really on your mind and what you think need needs to be changed, you can lose your momentum if you don't have a new community to connect with. And so Carrie, is that is that what you were trying to provide by having it be where groups of people were meeting together to hear your message? Um, yes, but the idea was to form groups, absolutely, because uh, you know the theory of social assets, so having peers and mentors is critical and being united in action is critical. Okay, okay. And, Many people talk to students about drugs and they say, you know, just say no or dare not to do drugs. Well-proven failures, which still push through because they're so simplistic. Um, If you form a group, then you give a student mentors, you give them counselors, you give them a community, you put them on a project. That's a whole that's a whole bucket full of social assets that they have. Yeah. And, and so, yes, forming a committee, forming groups, organization is, is critical mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. human felt lines. All right. And so I'm wondering also for you, Chris, just about this idea. We were talking before about building community. And I'm wondering now if there are things that you've seen that have been 
built up already uh, within the community that you work in, or even just now with what's happening in the world? Of course, I think there's a there's so many powerful uh, examples of different like communities that are in place. If I'm thinking about my first school, there was a really powerful paddling organization um, that took you know these middle school students and and had them do a really rigorous activity that, it, that paddling is and and also connected them with a generate with, with multi-generations which is really beautiful it's a collection of you know middle school and high school and then adults and then our elders and it allows them and it's a very communal approach that connects them across generations and different backgrounds and different jobs and you know so you have like those sort of organizations you have uh, tar uh, culturally targeted organizations like the mariachi bands um, in my my former school in East Los Angeles, which created a really strong sense of community and place, and tied them with the community and and you know this sort of um, their, their own sense of cultural legacy, which is really empowering and uh, impactful for them. And, you know, there's this incredible movement, you know, in my classroom, I created a, a class called Advocacy in Action, and we really created a, a sense of what it means to be an advocate and how you do that. And it's been really impactful for me to, I've been gone for a year from that class, but I, I have students connecting to me now saying, look, this is Advocacy in Action, Mr. Peck. I'm out there on the streets. I'm creating these organizations. I'm doing this sort of action and so you know there's a lot of ways that we we can and it can be small book clubs it can be uh you know skateboarding organizations it can be so many things but you find these interests and you connect them and you know i think that's one of the most powerful things especially for our students is to find what they're interested in and then bring them with mentors and with other peers mm -hmm. so that they can like really learn and grow together. Uh, and throughout the world, as you mentioned, I've been kind of going around and interviewing teachers everywhere. And likewise, it's, it's really been about those sort of relationships you have within your, your school system and your groups that have the greatest impact. And, and please, I'm so glad you brought that up because I want you to be able to talk about your podcast. Uh, this is, I'm going to use a Yiddish word, but it's like the Nachis corner and Nachis is pride in Yiddish. So I know I might be feeling maternal myself here, but I would love for you to talk about what you have, uh, what you have created and, and how you are helping people be able to show how they've done it in their countries and how they do it differently. Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, we've talked about this too. I think so often, you know, no matter where you grow up, you're, you're just indoctrinated into your, the worldview of your community, um, the socialization effects that you're surrounded with. And we have a very American view growing up in America and a white American view of that. Uh, and, and, you know, by doing this podcast that I've titled The Traveling Teacher, I've been able to go around the world of different countries and interview uh, uh, teachers and principals uh, and, and ask them about what the education system, what the schooling is like for them, how the, the whole society supports the child. Uh, and it's been incredible just to 
uh, learn that myself and also kind of spread that knowledge through a podcast form so that anyone can really listen to and engage with. And I think it's really, it's really powerful when, because people just get so locked into these systems that now this is just the way things are. And then you hear about other countries or other societies or other uh, states doing things differently. It really gives you kind of that like reflection, like, why don't we do that? How, if that's so effective there, how could we implement that here? And I think creating that awareness is so important. And so it's been a really, really enjoyable uh, project, a little passion project of mine that's, um, you know, really led me to meet a lot of incredible and inspiring educators. Wonderful. Who people probably would not have heard from and listened to otherwise on a global scale. So that's wonderful that you've done that. So are you the traveling teacher or are they the traveling teachers? Because I think it's a little bit of both. That's a little bit of both, yeah. <laughs> okay, right. And right, they are the traveled to teachers and you are the traveling teacher, right? Yeah, but you're right that doing it a different way. I mean, not having something that's cookie cutter where people have to fit into the system like approaching drugs and and smoking in a different way, using different language, using different techniques, not the old tried and true that were neither. Uh, they were just used because, you know, you could remember the, the catchphrases and, you know, people like catchphrases, but it doesn't mean that they work. Uh, and so here you had people be able to come into a system that you were creating for them, I think probably, Carrie, based on a new way of approaching it, but also based on them, what what was working, there's a there's an interplay. There needs to be an interplay or it's I think it's not gonna work and you need to be able to be open to be flexible. And so it sounds like you came across a lot of inflexibility, uh, but that you were you were trying to do it a very different way. Honestly, there's a lot of scientific research about, about ACEs, about childhood trauma, mm -hmm. very well established. There's an incredibly famous study out of Kaiser in uh, San Diego. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Folletti, who is the guy who invented this whole field, really, which is, which is now, I mean, it's irrefutable. The study was so huge and the selection so vast and the outcome so clear. Always, always back to the person. If you look at someone as not just a cipher or a switch or a robot, but a person, mm -hmm. then your whole approach is different. Uh, that's difficult to sustain on a large societal level. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even, even when you have good stats to show for it. And we had some astounding success with our students. Mm -hmm. And yet we, we were always, there were always people who were questioning. And, you know, um, I uh, often think of a lot of stories as people are talking that tie in and we're talking about the person and having that human connection, really not just having a room full of people, but seeing the person, wanting to know them and wanting to reach them. I was once at a conference and I heard uh, a couple of people speak who had been recruited into a terrorist organization on, online. They do a lot of recruiting online. Uh, and one of them said he cared so much about the mission. And another one said, the person who was my contact who originally recruited me remembered my birthday and was the only one who wished me happy birthday. And it was fascinating to hear that. 
because the philosophy, the theology, whatever it was, didn't matter, but he felt remembered. And it was the human connection. You see how powerful it is that, you know, it can get someone to be willing to give up their life for it, which is scary, but it just shows just how powerful that is. Chris, were you going to say something about what your, what your dad was talking about, about this changing the system or connecting with the individual? Yeah, I, I, it also ties back to what he said earlier about these, these sort of ideas um, people that kind of really thought about how can we create something that has never existed mm. and I think that is I think really important in and when we're thinking about societal issues as well mm -hmm. right with creating these problems it's not impossible to imagine anything right it's not impossible to imagine these sort of equitable systems we need to make sure that we have these people who are imagining these things and then and asking these questions and proposing these solutions so that then we can go out there and, 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 and implement them. And I think that's, I think we're really important right now when we have leaders, unfortunately, who are stuck to the status quo, we're, we don't have the leaders who are asking the, these, these larger uh, imaginary questions. And so I think that's a an important thing that I just wanted to bring up. Mm -hmm. You know, I, my father who, and my mom as well, but I remember his quotes, uh, he had activist spirit that he passed along to his family. He got it from his parents and back and similar to your family and a lot of other families, I think. And he used to say that the answer, because it's never been done before, is never an answer. That's a motivator. And so I thought that's interesting because here you can have that as a motivator, but then what? Well, then what do you do? <laughs> then how, how can you envision? You're talking, Carrie, about you know, visionaries at the beginning of our conversation. How do you envision what needs to be done and take a risk and have people back you when it sounds crazy because it's never been done before? It takes a lot of being bold and being willing to tolerate being called crazy. Uh, and being called a lot of other things, I'm sure too. Uh, okay, so as we, no, right, and thinking out of the box, all of it, yeah, it's not necessarily received well at first, and you have to, you have to ignore that somehow as just noise, but it, it's harder for some than others to ignore it. Um, okay, so as, just as we're finishing up, I want you to be able to um, impart any other stories or experiences, little nuggets of wisdom, uh, whatever you want to finish up with, it, the, the show is yours. We have to make sure we're always learning and, and uh, you know, having an understanding that we uh, stand on the shoulders of our ancestors and must, uh, you know, be grateful for where they have put us to this day and make sure that we are continuing on that path of uh, creating a greater society and I think we just need to make sure that we are constantly learning as individuals and as a society and we do the hard work to really understand ourselves and understand our socialization why we believe the things that we do which is hard work but it's crucial work for us developing a greater society and then really making sure that you support not just the individual change but the systemic change 
to make sure that we have a greater uh, society again. And then also do the action, you know, make sure that you are moving beyond just stating your support and actually putting, you know, action into place, whether that means going out and protesting, donating your time or resources to organizations, being a mentor to a, a student in need. There's a lot of ways to really be involved to, I think, in better yourself and our communities. And so uh, it's just about taking that first step to really uh, enrich your life. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. I like that. I would love to see that on a t-shirt, by the way. Uh, taking the first step to enrich your life. And because then you're, you know, you're taking the first step to enrich other people's lives, you know? Uh, okay. Uh, all right. So, Carrie. We're I, at a moment. Yeah. I think it's big enough that we could form groups that would confirm themselves to fight the struggle. There's a great goal we're trying to achieve in equality and fairness, racism. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly had the motivation to do it. There's certainly the native energy out there. It's converting that into groups that will feel united in that struggle. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Luther King. I mean, I, I'm asking for a very powerful, great personality to step forward. Uh, but there's certainly, it's a moment where there's the energy there to do the job. We have these, these certain leaders. What's really interesting is that we have, we, we, you know, there are these certain leaders who they've purposely decentralized power. I think this is a really interesting topic when we think about how change is made and do humans really need those charismatic leaders like a Malcolm X, like a Martin Luther King, like a Baldwin? Um, like, do we need those personas or, you know, can we have success in a decentralized leadership model that the Black Lives Matter movement is trying to go under? And um, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a conversation. I think that's, uh, going to be happening more and more as we try to shift push for change in our society wow that is quite a balancing act and i hadn't even thought about it and you're right i mean there there is something very powerful about um about finding leaders good leaders as you're talking about carrie and then also not deifying them or not having them be the lone voice it's also I think really important to recognize the fact that those leaders were then targeted, right? We can't forget that, right? Because of those that, I mean, the reason why we decentralized is because those leaders were purposely targeted by our FBI, right? And white supremacist groups, right? And yeah. they, in some cases, murdered and other cases just dismantled and, and held at, you know, certain sources of, uh, you know, held certain information on them to, uh, or imprison them, right? It's a, I think it's important to realize that like the movements that we had, the incredible success we had in the 60s was not this, this merry, happy, all collective movement. It was a very, you know, antagonistic movement. And these leaders dealt with constant bombardment and hatred and violence on individual and systemic level. Mm. And I think we have this like happy history that Martin Luther King was this, this incredible like peace loving individual that was loved by all. 
and he wasn't. The majority of people did not like Martin Luther King. Mm. And if we look at like, the, the polls at the time, he was not universally liked. He was deified before the passing of the civil rights movement uh, by a lot of press. And I think we've, we've really, like the, the, re, the way how history has worked, right? We've really created him into this hero figure, right. uh, which he is, right? And really important. But to understand that in the movement, he was really this revolutionary figure who dealt with a lot of oppressions. And so it's just kind of an interesting time that we're seeing now another push to really create a fairer society, how those forces come into play. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. I think, I think there need to be leaders. Every organization has started with someone with an idea. Mm-hmm. Either it was their facility to, to vocalize it, to give voice, but to give inspiration and, uh, mm-hmm. Very few social movements, and I'm I'm scratching my brain trying to think, didn't have a spokesman, didn't have someone to carry the flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to have that energy at the ground level to go. You've got to have a society that's grudgingly willing to give way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's always an icebreaker. There's always an icebreaker. There are always some radicals out there way ahead of the group mm-hmm. getting ground under and pulverized. But they're always leaders. We're we're human beings are pack animals, and we've always operated in packs. Yeah, for good for good and for ill, for good and for ill. Yeah, yeah, for both, right? I mean, the the behavior can be the same. I think the message or the intention is what makes all the difference. Uh, okay, all right. So I want to thank you both for your time and also for the work that you're doing and the work that you've done and will continue to do because it sounds like as you were talking about it Chris what you did at a school a year ago has this exponential effect and it keeps carrying on and so you uh, set something in motion and you carry set something in motion and so it's a wonderful thing to be able to see how that continues uh, and that you don't have to to be there, you you were really the one, the ones who, among other people, started momentum, and you hope that it just continues and goes in a really good direction and grows. And so, thank you for that and for everything again that you've done and for your insights and uh, and I love being able to just see the the interplay between the two of you. It's really it's nice to be able to just have you guys chat with each other about this. You know what? That was a great privilege. Thank you. So uh, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good night, both of you. Will do. Good night. One more thing before you go. I'm so glad you got to hear the second part of my conversation with Carrie Peck and his son, Chris Peck. Very special people from a very special family. When they talked about the inroads they had made and continued to make for different populations, they talked about setting up systems that were healthier, where people could learn and people could address things in new ways and people could connect and I'm sure be able to be open and feel safe, where they could thrive within the system that was created for them through education 
a system for prevention, for healing, whatever the goal was and whatever it continues to be for the work that Carrie and Chris both continue to do. Chris was talking about how when we deal with racism and we deal with addressing it, we need to address the entire system to not just look at each individual, but rather how they are influenced and how they're indoctrinated and how they're corralled and how they're motivated in good ways and not such good ways. I think about an image I posted years ago on Facebook that had a picture of a flower. And basically the message was that when a flower is dying, you don't just try to fix the flower, like tape it together. You need to fix the soil that it's growing in, the conditions need to be right in order for it to thrive. It's the same with people. And if the conditions lack the proper balance or nutrients or even enough light on the subject or with the flower sunlight on the subject, the individual or flower, whatever it is, will wither and grow weak and be hungry for what it needs to survive and grow upright. When we think about systems and looking at systems, it takes a different kind of eye. It, in fact, usually takes a certain vantage point, a distance, because when you're in it, you're so deeply in it, so firmly planted in it, that way of thinking or whatever it is in your community, your beliefs, you don't have the vantage point. You don't have the distance from which to be able to see a broader view. So it takes forward thinkers and it takes out-of-the-box thinkers and it takes people who will stand firmly outside the system for a bit of time and look at it and be willing to look at it and see if it's healthy or not and what needs to be changed or not. And I also think about this when people come out of highly controlled upbringings and social groups and when they're raised even as white supremacists and they've left the fold, when they're raised with a certain dogma of any sort and move outside of it long enough to see it, to really look at it, to see if they still have a place in it and if it speaks to them spiritually, ethically, politically, socially, and if it really is who they were or who they are, and if those same messages speak to them and if those same messages mean anything anymore. A lot of people who have left controlling relationships, abusive relationships, abusive households or cult groups, often feel that they are the ones who need to be changed, like the flower, that they have to be fixed, that something is wrong with them, that they are the bad seed. But instead, they and their beliefs and their behavior are a result of the system they were living in, a reaction to the system that they were in. And if the system wanted them to believe a certain way, and they knew that unless they did, they would be reviled or rejected or made to feel eternally damned or wrong at the very least, then very often they would go along to get along. And people in charge within unhealthy systems, as is often the case, benefit from the groupthink and benefit when each individual looks inward and feels they are faulty or weak for no longer agreeing with the kind of going thinking or the leadership. I remember a conversation I had with someone who was raised in a very isolationist environment where they had this grand feeling of superiority towards every other culture and every other religion and every other sexual preference and gender identity. And there was a high that came with that. But as this person grew up and grew away from that kind of isolationist and black and white thinking, he realized the high 
was more of a poison, that it poisoned his mind and it poisoned his vision and it gave him a sense that the only way to raise himself up was to stand on the backs of others who he had pushed down. And once he developed that visual in his mind that he was standing on the backs of others, not on their shoulders in that positive way, but on their backs, having knocked them down, weighing them down, he realized that that was not true achievement and that was not actual power. And he realized also that the reason he was filled with so much self-hatred was that this kind of behavior in retrospect, this kind of hatred and thinking was not at all in line with his conscience and ultimately his natural wiring. And it took some time for him to not move through the world for a while after feeling like he deserved to be punitive towards himself. He would pick fights so that he would get hit because he felt deserving of it. He would get in people's faces at a new job he had just gotten so that he would get fired and therefore reinforce this message that his life didn't deserve to be a good or successful one because of how much hatred he had spewed and how much damage he had done. But he did not set out to do all of this on his own. He did not raise himself with this way of thinking. He was indoctrinated. He was a victim just like the people he had victimized. And once he could take himself away from that self-flagellation, he could see that his former rage had been cultivated because it benefited other people. It benefited the head of his household. His actions helped to keep a fire stoked. It helped to keep the fight going so that the other people didn't really have to look at themselves and what they were doing. They could just continue the fight and continue people looking outward, looking at communities around them as being less than. And he could also then look inward and put himself down for not believing more strongly, not following the party line more, which the leader of his household relied on, that people were going to keep themselves in line if they wanted to do a quote-unquote good job and be seen like good card-carrying members of this way of thinking. He has gone on to do a lot of things behind the scenes, anonymously, to help with the cause of lessening misunderstanding, lessening hatred, lessening racism. And maybe one day he will come forward and speak on this podcast, I hope he will, and tell his story and use his name. But still, he needs to be careful because he knows he will be turned on by those who had been in his family and his community while he was growing up. I think about all the other people out there who can't yet tell their story because they will be turned on. And it gives me hope that there are more people who have a sense of fairness and wanting equality than are able to speak up. But he's a silent and powerful hero and a motivator for change. And he was able to do so as soon as he stopped taking all of this out on himself and saw who the real culprit was, the person who set the ball in motion, the head of the household. So as we all move forward into a new understanding and a new way of looking at all of this systemically, we hope that individually we can motivate ourselves to be our better selves and to do what is in line with our code of conduct. And the next time you hear people making a comment that makes you uncomfortable, where they're expecting you to laugh at a joke that 
internally makes you cringe or they want to be buddies with you if you feel the same way, but that same way just doesn't seem right. Well, those are all pivotal moments. Those are all moments in your life where you can make a choice, where you can take a stand and you can sidestep the people who want to corral you and hope that you still think things are funny that are not funny or that uh, you'll take things lightly and not be so serious when you suddenly realize just how serious these messages and trends and biases are. And if you feel overwhelmed by the idea of participating and trying to change the whole system or even part of the system and that feels like it's all too much, then just change your own actions so that they feel right to you. And the more people who do that, the more there will be a wave of change. But in order to change yourself or in order to change the system, you need to be open to the idea of thinking about things in a different way and to be open to the idea of being open to a new idea. People who are closed off and don't see a different way and don't feel hopeful about change are not the ones who often get to be part of the solution. So be ready to part with old ways of thinking and be ready if you want to help change happen to be determined to feel hopeful about the possibility of change. And with those themes in mind, I want to end with two quotes. The first by Albert Einstein that I've had on my website, actually, for many, many years, I've always liked it. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. That Einstein's a pretty smart guy. And then the second quote by journalist Sidney Harris. A cynic is not merely one who reads bitter lessons from the past. He is one who is prematurely disappointed in the future. So, don't be that cynic. Talk to you next week. This has been a fateful week in the history of our nation. We join with fellow members of our profession and men of goodwill everywhere in paying our profound respects to the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Society has always been reflected in its art. And one measure of Dr. King's influence on the society we live in is that of the five films nominated for Best Picture of the Year, two dealt with the subject of understanding between the races. It was his work and his dedication that brought about the increasing awareness of all men that we must unite in compassion in order to survive. The lasting memorial that we of the motion picture community can build Dr. King is to continue making films which celebrate the dignity of man, whatever his race or color or creed. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. 
please support indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.